This is a recording of the Nahum Convergence Reexamined, the Eastward Trail, Burial of the Dead, and the Ancient Borders of Nehem, by Neil Rapley, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Victor Worth. Abstract. For decades, several Latter-day Saint scholars have maintained that there is a convergence with the location of Nahum in the Book of Mormon and the Nehem region of Yemen. To establish whether there really is such a convergence, I set out to re-examine where the narrative details of 1 Nephi 1633 through 17.1 best fit within the Arabian Peninsula, independent of where the Nehem region or tribe is located. I then review the historical geography of the Nehem tribe, identifying its earliest known borders and academic interpretations of their location in antiquity. My investigation brings in data on ancient Yemen and Arabia that has not been previously considered in discussions about Nahum or Lehi's journey more generally, and leads to some surprising conclusions. Nonetheless, after establishing both where we should expect to find Nahum and the most likely location of ancient Nihim independent of one another, the two locations are compared and found to substantially overlap suggesting that the Nahum convergence is real. With the convergent relationship established, I then explore four possible scenarios for Lehi's stop at Nahum, the burial of Ishmael, and the party's journey eastward toward Bountiful, based on the new data presented in this paper. In his seminal work, Lehi in the Desert, originally published serially in the 1950 Improvement Era, Hugh Nibley pointed out a subtle detail in the wording of 1 Nephi 16.34. Quote, Note that this is not a place which we called Nahum, but the place which was so called. Close quote. In the mid-1970s, Lynn and Hope Hilton also noticed this detail and reasoned that Nahum, quote, was almost certainly a settled place because Nephi says it already was called Nahum while every other campsite was named by Lehi's family themselves, close quote. leading them to ask, quote, called Nahum by whom? Close quote. As a place name known to others on the Arabian Peninsula, Nahum could possibly be found in other historical sources. Sure enough, a year after the Hiltons published their exploration of Lehi's trail in the Ensign, archaeologist Ross T. Christensen identified the name Nehem, N-E-H-H-M, on an old 18th century map of Yemen prepared by German explorer and cartographer Karl Steinheber, and suggested that it might be, quote, the place which was called Nahum, 1 Nephi 16.34. In a short note published in the Ensign, Christensen recommended three steps be taken for further research, and in the intervening decades, each of his recommended avenues of inquiry have borne significant fruit. The first was, quote, to invite Semiticists to give their opinions as to whether Nahum and Nehem are probable phonetic equivalents, quote, quote. Starting with Warren Aston in the 1980s, researchers learned that Nehem was a variant spelling of the name Nehem, a regional and tribal name still attested today in Yemen, and spelled a variety of different ways, including Naham, Nahim, Nam, Nehem, Nehem, etc., with only the consonants N-H-M consistent. 
Such inconsistencies are a hallmark of attempts to transcribe Arabian names into the Latin alphabet, and a total of 17 different variants of this name are attested. In most Semitic languages, however, vowels go unwritten, and thus only the consonantal spelling NHM would have been on the plates. Thus, after considering possible linguistic factors, Semiticist Stephen D. Ricks, who literally wrote the dictionary on one of the major languages spoken anciently in Yemen, concluded, quote, Nahum, as the realization of the Southwest Arabian proper name NHM, is eminently plausible. Close quote. The next step recommended by Christensen was to, quote, search for the name on additional maps, even going back to medieval and ancient ones, if any can be found, close quote. Several additional maps from the 18th and early 19th century attesting to this name, usually spelled Nehem, as well as several more contemporary government maps, where the spelling is frequently Naham, or N-A-H-M, have since been identified by Aston and others. For his final suggestion, Christensen wrote, quote, Still another step, when the political situation allows, would be archaeological fieldwork, close quote. Yemen opened to archaeological fieldwork in the 1980s, and various excavations have been conducted by scholars from around the world since that time. As first noticed by S. Kent Brown, such fieldwork has recovered ancient South Arabian inscriptions mentioning Nehemites, N-H-M-Y-N, which confirm that the name went back to Lehi's day. Fieldwork also uncovered extensive burial grounds in the surrounding area. Christensen also noted, quote, Nehem is only a little south of the route drawn by the Hiltons, close quote. Subsequent researchers identified ancient trade routes leading further south into Yemen and then swinging in a more easterly direction, consistent with Nephi's directional statements, 1 Nephi 16, 13, and 33, and 17, 1. It has also been confirmed that the only plausible candidates for Bountiful are located nearly due east of the Nehem region. As all these discoveries emerged, it generated a consensus among Latter-day Saint scholars and researchers identifying Nahum with the Nehem region of Yemen, with some coming to regard the complex relationship of all these interlocking details as a convergence. For example, Brand A. Gardner concluded, quote, This combination of a named location in the right place at the right time provides a less-than-coincidental convergence between the text and the appropriate real-world setting. Defining and re-examining the convergence When discussing the relationship between archaeological discoveries and written sources, archaeologist William G. Deaver explained that convergences are, quote, points at which the two lines of evidence, when pursued independently and as objectively as possible, appear to point in the same direction and can be projected eventually to meet, close quote. Therefore, if there really is a convergent relationship between Nahum and Nehem, it will be confirmed by independent examinations of both, one, where Nahum should be located, based on the narrative details of 1 Nephi 16.33-17.1, best fit within Arabia, and two, the historical geography of the Nehem tribe, seeking to understand its earliest known location and ancient boundaries, as best can be determined from historical, archaeological, and scholarly sources. Only after the likely locations of both Nahum and Nehem have been independently assessed 
can they be compared? If they overlap, then it is fair to say that there is indeed a convergent relationship between the two. And, quote, whenever the two sources or witnesses happen to converge in their testimony, close quote, according to Deaver, quote, a historical datum, or given, may be said to have been established beyond reasonable doubt, close quote. In order to properly examine the Nahum convergence afresh, it will be necessary to revisit the details of Lehi's journey as a whole without assuming or taking for granted interpretations of the text that may be influenced by the presumed location of Nahum in Yemen. The past interpretations offered by Latter-day Saint scholars and researchers will not be ignored, of course, but emphasis will be placed on those interpretations that can be traced back to before the potential identification of Nahum with Nehem in 1977, or that can otherwise be shown to be formulated independently of any presumed association of Nahum and Nehem. These interpretations will then be considered against the data on ancient Arabia, as reported by mainstream, non-Latter-day Saint scholars, who are naturally uninfluenced by the details of the Book of Mormon narrative. There will be four steps to this re-examination process. First, as mentioned, it will be necessary to look at Lehi's journey as a whole, specifically looking at the details of Lehi's route and the directions followed to get to and leave from Nahum, and then establishing where in Arabia such travel directions lead based on historically documented routes. This alone will considerably narrow the geographic window wherein Nahum should be found. Second, the main detail in the text about Nahum is that it was the place where Ishmael was buried. Although we cannot determine with certainty that this was at a formal burial site, for various reasons discussed below, it seems likely that Ishmael's family would have preferred a more formal burial if such were available and accessible to them. As such, it is worth looking at the geographic distribution of burial sites and known necropolises within or near the region established by Lehi's travel directions. Third, 1 Nephi 1633-39 will be reviewed for additional details that can potentially shed light on the location of Nahum, and these will be considered in the context of what is known about the general vicinity to which Lehi's travel directions lead. All these factors combined may not necessarily pinpoint a single specific spot, but they do provide a pretty clear view of the general locality wherein Nahum must be found. Fourth, the historical geography of the Nahum will then be independently considered based on scholarly interpretation of primary sources from Arabia. This location will be subsequently compared against the location established for Nahum to determine if there is any overlap that thereby confirms a convergence. Then, in light of all the evidence reviewed throughout this paper, four potential scenarios will be considered for the specific location of Lehi's base camp established in 1 Nephi 16.33, the burial of Ishmael, and the subsequent turn eastward. Lehi's Route and the Frankincense Trail To get to Nahum, Lehi first led his family from Jerusalem to, quote, the borders near the shore of the Red Sea, close quote, and then traveled another three days before establishing a camp in a valley near the coastline, 1 Nephi 2, 5-8. When they resumed their journey, they went in, quote, nearly a south-southeast direction, close quote, a bearing they generally maintained for the duration of, quote, many days, close quote, until stopping just before Ishmael's death. 
1 Nephi 16, 13 through 17, and 33 through 34. After Ishmael's burial at Nahum, when the family resumed their journey, they, quote, did travel nearly eastward from that time forth, close quote, until arriving at a verdant coastal region they called Bountiful, 1 Nephi 17, 1 through 6. Of course, determining every step and stop of Lehi's route through Arabia with exacting precision is impossible to do. But this is to be expected from an ancient travel account, especially one written as a generalized summary decades after the fact. See second Nephi five twenty-eight through thirty-four. As Daniel T. Potts has noted, when studying travel through Arabia in antiquity, quote, there are many well-known logical routes the existence of which can be demonstrated through time, close quote. Yet, quote, it is nearly impossible to determine exactly which route was taken in an historical case unless the itinerary is specified, and even then, the toponyms mentioned may no longer be identifiable, close quote. In the specific historical case of Lehi's journey, Nephi only provides a sparse and incomplete itinerary, mentioning only four camps out of what must have been dozens, prior to the burial of Ishmael at Nahum, and afterwards only mentioning the final destination of their overland journey. See 1 Nephi 2, 5 through 10, 16, 6, and 12 through 14, 17, 33 through 34, and 17, 5 through 6. Such sparse references to named locations is not uncommon in ancient Arabian travel accounts, and typically makes it difficult to determine the exact route followed in any given case. This difficulty is further compounded in Lehi's case by the fact that apart from Nahum, all the toponyms in Lehi's itinerary are given to their various camps by Lehi or his family and are thus unidentifiable via outside historical records. And it came to pass that he called the name of the river Laman, 1 Nephi 2.8. My father dwelt in a tent in the valley which he called Lemuel, 1 Nephi 16.6. And we did call the name of the place Shazer. 1 Nephi 16.13 Ishmael died and was buried in the place which was called Nahum. 1 Nephi 16.34 And we did come to the land which we called Bountiful. 1 Nephi 17.5 And we beheld the sea which we called Ariantum. 1 Nephi 17.5 And we called the place Bountiful because of its much fruit. 1 Nephi 17.6 Despite this limitation, the first two camps can be identified with a reasonable high degree of confidence, thanks to Nephi's specific statement on the number of days traveled to reach each destination. First, nearly all researchers agree that the Valley of Lemuel, see 1 Nephi 2, 5-10, is located in Wadi Taib al-Ism, approximately 74 miles south of Aqaba. Similarly, there is a general consensus identifying the next camp, called Shazer, see 1 Nephi 16, 12-14, with Wadi Agar, also known as Wadi Sharma, which lies approximately 70 miles of travel southeast of Wadi Taib al-Ism. Whether or not these exact identifications are correct, however, the specification of exactly seven days total for the trek from Aqaba to Shazer, 1 Nephi 2, 5, and 16, 13, guarantees that Lehi's location by this point in his journey could not have been too far from the general vicinity of Wadi Agar. From here, Nephi only specifies that the party traveled many days before reaching the next unnamed camp mentioned in his account, 
and then they continued on once again for many days, before arriving at another unnamed location, after which they buried Ishmael at Nahum. 1 Nephi 16, 15-17, and 33-34. Unsurprisingly, this indefinite itinerary makes, quote, it nearly impossible to determine exactly which route was taken, close quote, from Shazer to Nahum, just as is the case with many other accounts of Trans-Arabian travel. Despite this inability to pin down Lehi's exact route, Latter-day Saint researchers have long recognized that the fabled Incense Road, or Frankincense Trail, demonstrates the existence of well-known logical routes that mirror the general course taken by Lehi and his family as outlined in 1 Nephi. The Frankincense Trail in the Early First Millennium B.C. The main course of the Frankincense Trail transported incense from Dofar and Hadramat westward through the South Arabian Caravan Kingdoms, and then north to northwest through Western Arabia, see Map 1. In 1957, Hugh Nibley was the first to point out that this route mirrored Lehi's trail, at least in its general course. Quote, For many centuries, the richest trade route in the world was that which ran along the eastern shore of the Red Sea for almost the entire length of the Arabian Peninsula. This is the route that Lehi took when he escaped from Jerusalem. Close quote. Nearly 20 years later, when the Hiltons were commissioned to retrace Lehi's steps, they used the Frankincense Trail as their template, arguing that Lehi's family would have stuck to this well-known route with access to water and other key resources. Since then, most researchers have agreed that Lehi likely followed this major trade route for at least parts and perhaps the majority of his journey, with George Potter and Richard Wellington developing the most comprehensive argument for placing Lehi on the Frankincense Trail. The most detailed information on the incense trade and the roads it used comes from Greco-Roman and other classical-era sources that post-date Lehi's time by hundreds of years. Nonetheless, Numerous sources confirm that this trade was well underway in Lehi's day. The origins of the South Arabian incense trade with Mesopotamia and the Levant began sometime between the 13th and 18th centuries BC. Assyrian records attest to trade and other interactions with Sabaeans by the mid-8th century BC, with some indications suggesting that the trade was already in place by the early 9th century BC. More recently, an inscription discovered in Jerusalem, potentially referring to incense and written in ancient South Arabian, dates to the 10th century BC. If this is accurate, it brings the evidence to within King Solomon's era, giving historical credence to his reported visit from the Queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10, 1-13, and suggesting that Israel was already involved in trade with South Arabia by the beginning of the first millennium BC. Various additional biblical texts and archaeological finds clearly establish contact between Judah and South Arabia by the 7th and likely the 8th century BC. While the most detailed information is from later periods, a generalized outline of the main trade routes can be recovered from early to mid 1st millennium BC sources that are closer to Lehi's time. One recently discovered bronze inscription written in Sabaic dated by many scholars to circa 600 to 550 B.C., narrates the military and commercial travels of a man named Shabahuhumu from Nashik, one of the Wadi Jaff states. 
under the auspices of the Sabaeans, Shabahuhumu, quote, traded and led a caravan to Dedan and Gaza and the towns of Judah, close quote. Not only does this confirm that there was contact between Judah and Saba at this time, it also indicates that the south-to-north trade route linking them began at the Wadi Jaf, Nashik, and passed through Dedan. As Alessandra Avicini concluded in the early 1st millennium BC, quote, Saba must have controlled a commercial path along the Red Sea towards Palestine and the Mediterranean, close quote. A 5th century BC Menaic wall inscription from Barakish, another city-state in the Jaff, talks about caravaneers traveling, quote, on the route between Main and Rajma. Rajma refers to Najran, another major stop along the north-south trade route, and according to Abyssini, this text indicated that the Menaeans had wrested control of the caravan route along the Hejaz from the Sabaeans by the end of the 5th century BC. Thus, in the early to mid-1st millennium BC, the south-to-north route of the incense trade evidently began in the Wadi Jaff, passed through Najran and Dedan, and then continued on to places in Judah and along the Mediterranean coast, the same basic route documented in greater detail in later times. Biblical texts also linked Dedan, Sheba, Saba, and Rama, Rajma Najran, in a way that suggests Israelites of the 7th through 6th centuries BC had a clear knowledge of this important trade route. See Genesis 10.6, Ezekiel 27.21-22. Inscriptional evidence also indicates that the Wadi Jaff was the nexus of the north-south trail and the roads bringing incense from the east during the early 1st millennium BC. Key evidence comes from the city of Haram, located in the Jaff, where an early 7th century BC inscription was found which invokes the god of Najran. This most likely means that Haram and Najran had commercial ties, linking Haram to the northward trade route discussed above. Two other inscriptions from Haram also dated to the early 7th century BC identify leaders of Haramite trading outposts established in areas to the east of the Jaff. The, quote, chief of Ararat, close quote, identified as Al-Asahil, northwest of Marib, and the, quote, chief of the Hadramat, close quote, the easternmost tribal kingdom of South Arabia. Thus, Haram was evidently the turning point within a trading network that expanded northward and eastward from the Jaff, going from Hadramat in the east to Ararat and then Haram, from whence it turned north toward Hadran. While this does not allow us to reconstruct the exact route eastward used by the Haramite traders, as with the north-to-south trail discussed above, this is generally consistent with the east-to-west roads used in the incense trade as documented in later sources. This overall consistency hardly comes as a surprise, given the, quote, geographical determinism, close quote, that dictated travel in the ancient Near East, and Arabia in particular. As Barry J. Beetzel explains it, quote, there were certain largely unchanging physiographic and or hydrologic factors which determined that routes followed by caravans, migrants, or armies remained relatively unaltered through extended periods of time, close quote. Because of this, according to Michael Jake Astor, quote, it is thus possible when at least some of the transit points can be located on the map to restore the entire route 
by using the data of physical geography and of more detailed itineraries from a later age. Close quote. Speaking specifically of South Arabia, Richard L. Bowen noted quote, that the country is geographically rugged and climactic conditions have not changed much in several thousand years. Close quote. And thus the same quote, routes have probably been in use for millennia. Close quote. Potts similarly observed, quote, the basic topography and hydrology of Arabia has not changed significantly in the last two to three thousand years, close quote. And thus later travel reports, ranging from early Islamic pilgrimage roads to accounts of travel by camel in early modern times, quote, provide invaluable information on non-motorized travel possibilities in Arabia in all periods when properly integrated with more ancient historical accounts, close quote. With this in mind, we can plausibly use the later reconstructions of the Frankincense Trail and the local road networks it intersected with to flesh out the basic overall route that can be confirmed by early to mid-first millennium BC sources. Even if some specific routes did not come into common use until later periods, the general stability of the terrain, hydrology, and climate over time suggest most were possible to use by earlier travelers and likely were used at least occasionally by some prior to the time when they were more widely documented. Lehigh's Connecting Route to the Frankincense Trail The Frankincense Trail provides a well-known, logical route which existed in the early 1st millennium BC that broadly mirrors Lehigh's route, and most Latter-day Saint scholars, beginning with Hugh Nibley in 1957, agree that Lehigh likely followed this trail for at least part of his journey. To get to the main route of the Incense Road from the area of Wadi Agar, Sharma, the likely location of Shazer, sooner or later Lehi would have needed to take a connecting pass through the Hijaz or Asir Mountains. Once again, there are a number of logical, historically documented routes that Lehi potentially could have taken. Perhaps the most direct option would be to follow Wadi Sharma itself, which Aston notes, quote, provides a pathway further into the interior of Arabia, close quote. If the Roman port Luke Kome was located at Wadi Ainona, as many scholars believe, then there may have been a route going straight through Wadi Sharma and on to Tabuk, a stop along the main incense road, at least during the Roman period. However, such a path, nearly due east for approximately 85 miles, does not fit well with the directions provided by Nephi for this part of the journey. A more likely route is the early Islamic pilgrimage road that went from the Gulf of Aqaba to Medina, passing right through Wadi Agar and continuing to Al-Ula, the location of ancient Dedan, where it merged with the main incense trail. Nigel Groom suggests that this route was used as a secondary trail in the incense trade, based on references from Greco-Roman sources and archaeological evidence near Aqaba dated to the 6th century BC. Connecting to the fertile areas of the Hejaz Mountains in a generally southeastward direction, this trail fits well with Nephi's account, as Potter and Wellington have argued. Alternatively, Lehi's party could have gone down the coastline another 150 miles to Al-Waj, passing through oases such as Wadi al-Mu'ale and Wadi al-Aznam, from Al-Waj, they could go southeast to the mouth of Wadi Hamd, a broad fertile valley that provides natural passage into the mountains southeastward to Medina. 
In pre-Islamic times, Medina was known as Yathrib and is attested as a stop along the main trade route in Babylonian sources from the 6th century BC. If Luke Kome was alternatively located in Al-Waj or the nearby Ras Karkuma, as favored by some scholars, then Wadi Hamd was almost certainly used as the main route connecting the port to the caravan trails inland. Thus, taking this generally south-southeastward route from Wadi Agar to Medina would also be largely consistent with Nephi's account. Several additional Wadi networks also provide passage through the northern Hijaz, and other passes exist further to the south, such as the routes linking Mecca to the Frankincense Trail. Further south still is the road leading southeastward from Al-Kunfuda to Najran that the Hiltons proposed as part of Lehi's route. No doubt several more possible passes could be proposed. It is impossible to determine with certainty which route was followed, but three clues suggest that they went into the mountains soon after departing from Shazer. 1. The Red Sea and its borders quickly dropped from the narrative. 2. They were hunting and slaying food by the way. And three, traversing through fertile parts of the wilderness, first Nephi sixteen, fourteen through seventeen. All these details are consistent with moving away from the coast and crossing the northern Hejaz, where there is greater fertility and hunting grounds in the mountains and the inland plateau than along the coast. In any case, all of these demonstrate the existence of well known logical routes that generally maintain a south to southeastward course, and could have been taken by Lehi to cross the mountains and merge onto the main route of the Frankincense Trail, somewhere between Dadan and Najran. From there, they naturally would have continued on, quote, following the same direction, close quote, further south-southeast into Arabia, quote, traveling nearly the same course as in the beginning, close quote, until Ishmael's passing, first Nephi 1614 and 33-34. Lehi's nearly eastward trek, possible turning points. After Ishmael's bury at Nahum, Lehi's party turned, quote, nearly eastward from that time forth, 1 Nephi 17.1. Using the known points where ancient trade routes turn to a generally east-west directional bearing provides a limited number of places where Lehi and his family could have turned nearly eastward for the final leg of their journey. This, in turn, puts constraints on where Nahum must be located. Independence of any historical or inscriptional evidence for where a tribe or toponym with an NHM name might be found. As the Hiltons reasoned in 1976, quote, the locale of Nahum would be in the area where the Frankincense Trail is known to have turned eastward. Thus, we determined that a study of the communities in this area might uncover a possible Nahum, close quote. Historically, there are three main routes known to connect the Jaff region of Yemen to the Hadramat in the east, see map 2. The southernmost route, which most scholars presume was the primary road used by the incense caravans, departed from the Wadi Jaff at Barakish, known anciently as Yat Hill, southward for roughly 10 to 15 miles before bending eastward toward Marib. It was then possible to cut northeastward to Ruach, see map 1, following Loretto, thereby merging with the route coming directly out of the Joff, discussed below. The main trail, however, took a more circuitous route 
eastward from Marib as it skirted the edges of the mountains, first in a southeastward, then in a northeastward direction, quote, leading one through settlements in an eastward arc from Marib to Shabwa. Close quote. Despite the fact that it was the least direct route eastward, the main trail had the greatest access to water, food, and other resources. And hence, S. Kent Brown argued that Lehi most likely stuck to this road, reasoning that, quote, it was more prudent for them to follow the main incense trail as long as they could, close quote. More directly eastward was the route that departed out of the Wadi Jaff and cut across the desert along a narrow gavel corridor in a generally east-southeast direction toward Shabwa. Because this route lacked regular access to water, most scholars presume that it was a rarely used shortcut, followed mainly by lightly loaded caravans and smaller groups, such as Lehi's family would have been. A.F.L. Beeston, however, believed it was actually the primary route of the incense trade. Also, according to Beeston, the armies of Saba and Hadramat, and on one occasion he argued the Romans, used this corridor to march military campaigns against one another, traveling directly east-west between the Jaff and the wells of Al-Aber. Thus, Shabahuhamu probably followed this route as he marched, quote, with the army of Saba into the land of Hadramat, close quote, indicating the likely use of this eastward road close to Lehi's day. Both Warren Aston and co-authors George Potter and Richard Wellington independently proposed variations on Lehi's trail, which incorporate routes running through this eastward corridor. The final east-west route bypassed the Wadi Jaff altogether, skirting along the southern edge of the empty quarter to the well of Mushnaika, and then to Al-Aber, and on to Shabwa or elsewhere within the Wadi Hadramat. Like the route through the Jaff, this trail is generally presumed to have been used by smaller, lightly loaded caravans, due to its difficulty and limited access to water and other resources. Nonetheless, inscriptional graffiti attests to its use in antiquity. Before Nahum was thought to correlate with the Nihim region, the Hilton suggested that this was the route the Lehites followed, stating, quote, the shorter but more difficult part of the Frankincense Trail that Lehi and his party took in turning eastward skirted the very fringe of the largest sand desert on earth, close quote. While the exact itineraries of each eastward route could vary depending on different factors and circumstances, these represent the only three junctures where well-known ancient routes go in a primarily east-west direction across the Arabian Peninsula. While there were routes north of Najran that led across the eastern side of the peninsula, namely the road to Gera and the North Arabian trails to Mesopotamia, these all run in a decisively northeastward direction. CMAP 1. It is hard to imagine a southbound traveler along the incense trail from Palestine switching over onto any of these northeast trending trails and describing their new course as nearly eastward. Truly, as Brown previously observed, it is only, quote, after passing south of Najran that both the main trail and several shortcuts turned eastward, close quote. And this, quote, is the only place along the incense trail where traffic ran east-west, close quote. Unsurprisingly, considering the, quote, geographical determinism, close quote, already discussed, there are environmental factors that dictated this course, as Aston noted, quote, Only recently has satellite-assisted mapping enabled us to appreciate that after traveling southward into Arabia 
as the Lehites did. People are prevented from easterly travel by the shifting, waterless dunes of the vast, empty quarter, as much today as in the past. However, a narrow band of flat plateaus marking the southern end of the empty quarter presents the first opportunity for travel in an easterly direction. Furthermore, the text does not merely require it to be possible to turn east, but that Lehi and his family were able to continue eastward to a fertile coastal location that fits Nephi's description of Bountiful, 1 Nephi 17, 5-6. Since the 1950s, scholars have generally agreed that the only place along the entire southeastern coast of Arabia that matches Nephi's description is the Dofar region in southern Oman. The exact east-west relationship of Nahum and Bountiful depends to some extent on which specific turning point is used and where in Dofar Lehi specifically camped, as discussed below. But generally speaking, Dofar is basically eastward from the Wadi Jaff and its surrounding region. Thus, for our purposes, it is sufficient to note that each of these eastward routes converge around either Al-Abr or Shabwa, and from there, various overland routes could be followed further eastward to Dofar. For all practical purposes, Lehi's turn eastward must have taken place within this limited range, approximately 60 miles in length, north to south, positioned around the Wadi Jaff, regardless of whether or not a place or tribe called Neham could be documented within or near that zone. Ishmael's Burial Within Ancient Yemen's Funerary Landscape Nephi's succinct statement, quote, and it came to pass that Ishmael died and was buried in the place which is called Nahum, 1 Nephi 1634, can be interpreted in two ways. One, that Ishmael both died and was buried at Nahum, or two, that Ishmael died while they were camped at an unnamed location, see verse 33, and was then taken to Nahum for burial. Aston has argued it this way, quote, it is important to note that Nephi does not state that Ishmael died at Nahum, but that he was buried there. While it remains possible, it is unlikely that Ishmael conveniently died right at the place of burial. Despite the need in a hot climate to bury the deceased quickly, Ishmael's body may have been carried by the Lehite group for some distance, perhaps for days, in order to provide him a proper burial. Quote. It must be understood that burial of the dead was of grave importance in the biblical world and lack of a proper burial was considered a disgrace. In the Bible, according to Elizabeth Block Smith, quote, "...interment was accorded to all who served Yahweh. Sinners were cursed with denial of burial or exhumation." Quote. For an Israelite, burial preferably occurred in the land of Israel, in a family tomb where one's ancestors were buried. As Rachel S. Halot explains, quote, "...a person who was gathered to his ancestors and buried in a family tomb would not be lost or forgotten. Burial in a family tomb associated an individual with the greatness of his ancestors, who were also buried there. The patriarchs Jacob and Joseph insisted they were not to be permanently interred in Egypt, but that their remains were to be taken back to the land of Israel and buried with their fathers. Genesis 47, 29-31, 49-29-33, CF 50-24-26. Some Jews of the Diaspora returned to Judea to inter the remains of their deceased loved ones, as attested to by sarcophagi of Yemeni Jews from the 3rd century AD found in the Jezreel Valley. Martin Gilbert explains, quote, 
Yemeni Jews made great efforts to return to Judea when burying their dead, sometimes embarking on a journey across the deserts of Arabia that would take at least 60 days by caravan. Quote. This puts a new perspective on the daughters of Ishmael's bitter lament that Lehi quote, had brought them out of the land of Jerusalem, saying, Our father is dead. 1 Nephi 16.35 This was not merely a yearning for the comforts of home, but a desire to bury their father in their homeland with his ancestors. No matter how, quote, desirous to return again to Jerusalem, close quote, they may have been, 1 Nephi 16.36, however, this was not a viable option for the families of Lehi and Ishmael. Absent the opportunity to bury Ishmael in their homeland, it is certainly possible that he was simply buried along the roadside near where he died, as was apparently done on other occasions, C.E.G. Genesis 25, 8, 35, 18 through 20, Numbers 21. Yet for several reasons, this would have been considered suboptimal. Formal burial grounds could include a ceremonial center or shrine, C.F. the House of Mourning, Beit Mizrach, in Jeremiah 16:5, that could have been used for the proper performance of funerary rites. It would also have the added benefit of ensuring the grave is occasionally visited by others, something that was believed to actually benefit and provide care for the deceased in the afterlife. Ishmael's family no doubt lamented that they must bury their father in a strange land, to which they never would be able to return to commemorate and care for him. But if he was buried near other tombs, then at least others may visit and commemorate him as an adopted ancestor, a possibility that could have brought some comfort to the grieving travelers. Ultimately, according to Block Smith, quote, proper burial required interment in a kaber, Genesis 23.4, Exodus 14.11, Isaiah 22.16, or a keburah, Genesis 35.20, Deuteronomy 34.6, Isaiah 14.20, a burial place. John A. Tvednes pointed out that the Hebrew word typically meaning place, makam, is at times used to mean the grave, tombs, or the destination of the dead. Thus, when Nephi says Ishmael, quote, was buried in the place, which was called Nahum, 1 Nephi 16.34, he may have been conveying the fact that this was a place with a formal mortuary complex, a destination of the dead of sorts. As early as 1950, Hugh Nibley proposed that Nahum was not simply where Ishmael happened to die, but rather was, quote, a desert burial ground, close quote. Noting that, quote, though Bedouins sometimes bury their dead where they die, many carry the remains great distances to bury them, close quote. Therefore, the location of appropriate burial grounds is another consideration for the location of Nahum that can be assessed independent of the historical or geographic evidence regarding the Nim tribal territory. Turret Tomb Necropolises to this day, the desert landscape of northern Yemen is dotted with extensive ancient burial grounds. As Jean-Francois Beton has noted, quote, tombs have been found in fairly dense concentrations throughout the Yemeni countryside, close quote. Aston has long drawn attention to the large ancient necropolises at Ruwaik and Jidran, where thousands of above-ground cairns, or turret tombs, stretch across the outlying desert east of the Wadi Jaf. Alternatively, when Brown visited Yemen to film the documentary Journey of Faith, Yemeni archaeologist Abdul Othman Ghaleb took him to an ancient cemetery, quote, with thousands of burials at the eastern end of Wadi Nehem, 
where it turns north and runs toward Wadi Jaff. In addition to these, there are several other places of burial within or near the quote, eastward turn zone close quote, defined above. According to Alessandro de Margre, there are also quote, huge necropolises close quote, of circular cairns quote, in the mountains on the borders of the Jaff Valley, close quote. Starting west of Barakish, on the slopes of Jebel Yam, these tombs, quote, continue almost uninterruptedly as far as Jabal Siliam, close quote, as documented by Angela Lupino. Turret tombs were also found to the north on Jebel al-Lad, which lies on the northeastern edge of the Wadi Jaff. Further south, turret tombs were found near the village of Mill. Italian archaeologists have documented and mapped the distribution of these and other turret tomb necropolises, which spread across the Yemeni landscape. See Map 3. Based on the current evidence, most of these turret tombs were built in the early 3rd millennium BC, but many were either built or reused in the 1st millennium BC and even into the early centuries AD. Human remains were covered at the cairns just north of Sirwa, for example, were radiocarbon dated to between the 8th century BC to the 1st century AD, and the tombs along the southern edge of the Jaff are also believed to have been in use during the same time period. Since these tombs are typically found in isolated regions of the desert, far away from any major ancient settlements, they are generally believed to have served remote outsider populations, such as nomads, foreigners, and travelers connected with the caravan trade. They may have been connected to the quote-unquote Arabs, which were a distinct ethnic group in antiquity that lived on the periphery of South Arabian society. More on this below. Imported items from as far away as Iran recovered from some of these tombs, quote, seemed to point to a certain internationality of the people who buried their dead in these towers, close quote. And other evidence indicates, quote, the deceased had to be preserved during long journeys before reaching the designated tomb. Thus, these burial grounds with turret tombs were in active use when Lehi's family would have arrived in South Arabia, and in some cases may have been used by long-distance foreign international travelers. The Eastward Trails and the Distribution of Turret Tombs One of the major reasons why these tombs are thought to be connected to transient populations is because, according to De Migre, quote, their particular distributive pattern seems to suggest that there was a link between these structures and the ancient trade routes, close quote. Burkhardt Vogt further explained, quote, since these tombs align with trade routes, it has been proposed that they represent people who were also in charge of the caravan trade in frankincense, aromatics, and other commodities, close quote. In fact, archaeologists have, quote, found traces of the ancient roads, which are otherwise unrecognizable, close quote, by, quote, following the lines of the turret tombs, close quote. Thus, according to de Magray, quote, the turret tombs can be used as precious indicators in a reconstruction of the ancient itineraries, close quote. Potentially reconstructing Lehi's ancient itinerary from Nahum using a trail of tombs certainly feels apropos, since his stay in this region involved the burial of the dead. Interestingly, the most striking correlation between tombs and trail is the continuum of funerary complexes 
that stretches out in a nearly eastward direction from the Joff to Jabal, Jidran, Jabal Ruaik, Aith Thania, and Al-Abr, continuing into the Hadramat until east of Tarim. According to Breton, this chain of burial complexes corresponds with the eastward caravan trail. Quote, a map of these sites shows how they run along the principal routes eastward from Irma to Shabwa to Barakish to Upper Joff. There is a clear connection between the geographical distribution of these burial sites and the caravans that follow these routes. Close quote. This is dramatically confirmed when the geographic distribution of the tombs is overlaid onto the map of eastward trails, see map 4. This convergent relationship between burial of the dead and eastward travel in ancient Yemen is certainly interesting when compared with Nephi's account of burying Ishmael at Nahum and then turning, quote, nearly eastward, 1 Nephi 16.34 and 17.1. This is consistent with Nahum being somewhere in or near the general vicinity of the Wadi Jaff, as concluded from the evidence of the known eastward turning points. Carved Face Funerary Stelae A further indication that this was an appropriate region for travelers to bury or commemorate their dead comes from the large corpus of about 640 funerary stelae recovered from the Wadi Jaff region. These mortuary stelae are generally made out of sand or limestone, are rectangular in shape, and have facial features carved, often crudely, into them with the name of the deceased individual, usually inscribed beneath the face. The exact origins of the population these monuments represent is still the subject of some debate, but scholars generally agree that the use of cheap materials and low-quality craftsmanship indicates that these were people with little means or limited access to resources. Most also agree that at least some of the individuals commemorated by these stelae were foreigners, travelers, or otherwise outsiders amongst the Joff population. Christian Roban and Sabina Antonini have each suggested that these stelae attest to the presence of ethnic Arabs from the mountains north of Wadi Joff living amongst Joff populations in the early 1st millennium BC. Several other scholars have noted ties with North Arabian cultures. Some evidence even suggests that some of these stelae represent people who came from beyond the Arabian cultural sphere. For instance, according to Munir Arbach and Jeremy Shidikate, one represented a woman of Babylonian origin. A study of the onomastics of those stelae found in situ at Barakish found links to Northwest Semitic and Akkadian in addition to ties with North Arabian names. Thus, some of the people memorialized by these stelae must have been from far-off places in North Arabia, Mesopotamia, and the Levant. Overall, this evidence suggests that these stelae represented a combination of both locals and foreigners who were involved in long-distance travel, not necessarily wealthy merchants and traders, but, quote, the caravaneers themselves the people who materially transported the merchandise up and down the peninsula on behalf of princes, priests, and traders who lived in the cities, close quote. perhaps including ethnic Arabs who lived on the northern fringes of South Arabian society. This is all the more likely in light of evidence from the archaeological context at Barrakish, suggesting that some of these stelae were used as cenotaphs, monuments commemorating persons who died and were buried somewhere else. 
If this is correct, then it would imply that the Joff was a central location where some who traveled long distances on caravan trails commemorated their dead, even if they had died somewhere else and their bodies could not be brought for burial. This large corpus of funerary stelae thus provides further evidence that the region around the Joff was an appropriate place for travelers such as Lehi and his family to bury or at least memorialize their deceased companion Ishmael. 1 Nephi 16.34 In fact, one of these funerary monuments, figure 1, dated to around the 6th century BC, is inscribed with the South Arabian form of the name Ishmael. Ishmael. Based on the broader context drawn from the overall corpus of carved face stelae, it is possible this Ishmael was a foreigner who traveled along the caravan trails and had ties to the Arab tribes north of the Joff. This could fit, in very broad strokes at least, with the general profile of Ishmael in the Book of Mormon. But it is impossible to come to even a tentative conclusion as to whether he is the Ishmael of this Stella. Nonetheless, given its dating and overall context, this possibility should not be ruled out. Other textual clues in 1 Nephi 16, 33-39. The clearest and strongest indication of Nahum's location is the directional shift nearly eastward. And the second most significant clue is its use as a place of burial. Yet other details in the narrative of 1 Nephi 16, 33-39 also need to be taken into consideration when trying to determine the setting for these events. Unfortunately, this terse account does not yield as much clear information as one might hope. Nonetheless, probing the full narrative may provide hints or clues that can help further triangulate where we should be looking. First Nephi says that after an extended journey of many days, they once again established camp so they could, quote, tarry for the space of a time. First Nephi 16.33 The next thing reported in the text is Ishmael's death and burial at Nahum, verse 34. As already noted, it is possible the family carried Ishmael's body to an appropriate burial ground, and so it is unclear whether they were already at Nahum, or if this is a separate location unnamed in the narrative. Yet in ancient Israel, according to R. Dennis Cole, quote, people were buried as soon as possible after death. Quote. Roland Vaux explained that the exact quote, interval which elapsed between death and burial quote, is not known with certainty, but quote, the delay was probably very short. It is probable that, as a general rule, burial took place on the day of death. Extenuating circumstances, such as passing away in a remote area far from any proper places of burial, may have justified postponing the burial by a day or two. But Ishmael's family was still undoubtedly eager to bury their deceased patriarch with as little delay as possible. Thus, they were almost certainly near Nahum, if not already within its boundaries, by the time they stopped and set up camp. In order for Lehi's group to, quote, tarry for the space of time, close quote, there had to be access to needed resources, at the very least water, and perhaps food and other provisions as well. Warren Aston reasons, quote, this wording makes it certain that they were in a place where they could rest and obtain food, close quote, and speculates that they harvested crops and their women gave birth during this period of respite. He thus suggests that they had already arrived in the fertile and populated Wadi Jaff by this point. On the other hand, upon their father's passing, the daughters of Ishmael lamented, quote, We have suffered much affliction in the wilderness, 
hunger, thirst, and fatigue. 1 Nephi 16.35 Laman and Lemuel also complain of Nephi's deceiving them by cunning arts and leading them in, quote, some strange wilderness, close quote, with the intent to make himself, quote, a king and a ruler over us. 1 Nephi 16.38 From a narratological perspective, these complaints appear to allude back to their previous camp where Nephi's bow broke. The family suffered from hunger and fatigue and Nephi made himself a new bow, a symbol of kingship in the ancient Near East, and used the Liahona to guide him to where he should obtain food, 1 Nephi 16, 17-32. Yet, some researchers have also suggested that these complaints may reflect the experiences of the family on their journey between the broken bow camp and Nahum. There's generally little fertility in the vast desert mountain region between Najran and the Joph. Travelers have little choice but to skirt along the edge of the rocky hills on the west and the sand dunes of the empty quarter on the east, or try their luck in the winding maze of twisting wadis still used as camel trails in fairly recent times. 19th century Jewish-French explorer and Semiticist Joseph Halevi got lost and, quote, wandered hungry and thirsty, close quote, in this region after being abandoned by his local guides. The stretch between Bisha and Najran wherein the Broken Bow camp was most likely located, is equally unforgiving. With few opportunities to rest and restock on food and water supplies, Lehi's family could well have, quote, suffered much hunger, thirst, and fatigue, close quote, during this challenging stretch of their journey, and the large sand dunes of the empty quarter would have been a new and perhaps strange kind of wilderness to the people in Lehi's party. Even after arriving at Nahum, the daughters of Ishmael evidently still feared that they would, quote, perish in the wilderness with hunger, close quote. And it was only through the Lord's blessing that they obtained, quote, food that we did not perish, First Nephi 16:35 and 39. If they were in a populated fertile area, such as the Wadi Jaff, it is possible they had to wait for a crop harvest or that they lacked provisions to trade for food. And so perishing for want of food remained a concern. In the midst of the daughters grieving over the loss of their father, it is also likely that the other risks and fears became magnified. As Aston reasoned, quote, In the bitterness of their grief, they saw only the prospect of more hardship and hunger in the future under Lehi's leadership, close quote. And, quote, They knew their present stop was only temporary and not their final destination, close quote. Thus, Aston concludes, quote, Concern over the immediate lack of food and fear that only more of the same lay ahead seems to be at the heart of their complaint. In addition, their complaint could reflect exaggerated frustration that their limited food resources prevented them from hosting a marziach, a feast that was a customary part of Judahite morning rituals of their time, and intended to comfort, Nacham, and provide consolation, Tanachamat, to the bereaved. See Jeremiah 16, 5-9. In contrast, Potter and Wellington argued that the party's risk of perishing at Nahum was real, and thus it could not have been a populated, fertile place. Instead, they argued that Ishmael's health forced Lehi's family to stop for an extended period in a less-than-ideal location, where they had access to water but not food or other needed resources. Thus, Potter and Wellington argued that the events of 1 Nephi 16.33-39 occurred before Lehi and his family reached the Wadi Jaw, quote, most probably somewhere in the 50 miles north of Jabal al-Lad and south of Wadi Kab, close quote. 
these contrasting interpretations of 1 Nephi 16, 33-39 yield slightly different conclusions about the location of Nahum, both of which fall within the boundaries of the eastward turn zone within which Nahum must be located. In either case, the implication of the text is that the journey prior to their arrival at Nahum passed through a barren, waterless region, which forced the group to endure greater hardships. This is consistent with the region south of Najran, which Lehi's family would have had to pass through to reach the area where the trails branch out eastward. Furthermore, whether one assumes they must have reached a fertile, populated area to set up camp, or were forced to stop in the midst of the barren desert, either interpretation can be accommodated for within the boundaries established by other criteria for Nahum's location. The Historical Geography of Nahum and the Location of Nahum Thus far we have assessed all the available details about Nahum provided in the text, except the toponym itself, and found that they all converge together around what might be called the Greater Joff area, extending north and south from the Wadi Joff. No other region is known to fit with all the relevant details in Nephi's text, and thus Nahum most logically should be situated within this general vicinity, regardless of whether or not a NHM toponym can be documented in this region anciently. Furthermore, a place called NHM located outside of this region would not likely be Nephi's Nahum, regardless of the similarity in names. It is within this context that I would like to finally turn our attention to the Nahum region of Yemen and consider whether it falls within the bounds independently established for the location of Nahum. In order to do so, however, we cannot simply rely on the modern borders of Nahum, see map 5a. While there has been a great deal of stability in the historical geography of this region over time, the tribal geography has experienced periods of change and fluctuation. Thus, we must consider the Nahum tribe's historical geography and seek to establish its earliest known borders. Only then can we compare its location against Nephi's record to determine if it fits the criteria outlined for Nahum. Modern Nahum In modern times, Nahum has been the name of an administrative district within the Republic of Yemen since 1990 and was part of the bureaucratic apparatus of the Yemen Arab Republic before then, CMAP 5A. This modern administrative system was overlaid on a pre-existing tribal structure that goes back centuries, with some aspects even going back millennia. Anthropologist Marieke Brandt explains, quote, In the 20th century, these tribal territories became the basis of the administrative divisions of northern Yemen. The borders of most of today's districts, S.G. Mudiriya, and municipalities, S.G. Uzla, are congruent with the boundaries of the tribes and tribal sections that inhabit them. Quote. Thus, several of the districts and municipalities are identical with the pre-existing tribal territories and bear the tribe's name. The tribal boundaries, however, are not as rigid as those of the official districts, and sometimes a tribe's territory expands beyond that of its eponymous district. Christian Roban's mapping of the modern Nihim's tribal territory is significantly more expansive than the present-day district, encompassing roughly 5,000 square kilometers. See map 5b. Earlier sources suggest they had approximately the same boundaries throughout much of the 20th century. For instance, 
1947, Egyptian archaeology Ahmed Fakhri identified Wadi Hiran as the westernmost border of, quote, the land of the Bedouins of Naham, which matches the boundaries outlined by Raban nearly 40 years later. In 1936, British explorer Harry St. John Philby described, quote, Bilad Nam, close quote, the country or land of Naham, as a region to the west of Wadi Ragwan, suggesting a similar eastern border as that sketched out 50 years later by Raban. Various maps of the mid-18th and 19th century plotting the name N-E-H-E-M or N-E-H-H-M do not allow us to reconstruct the exact borders of the tribal region, but illustrate that it was the same approximate location more than 250 years ago. Nehem in the early Islamic period. As noted, aspects of the tribal structure of northern Yemen go centuries and even millennia back in time. According to Robert Wilson, quote, Over the past 10 centuries, there is little or no evidence of any major tribal movements in this part of Yemen. And the overwhelming impression is one of minimal change, even if tribal alliances have from time to time altered or developed. Quote. Wilson noted that in the writings of Abu Muhammad al-Hassan al-Hamdani, the great Arab scholar of the 10th century, circa 893 to 945 AD, many of quote, the tribes listed and the places which they occupied present few surprises to anyone familiar with the positions of the tribes of Bakil today, close quote, including the Nehem. This isn't to say that there have been no changes or fluctuations in tribal boundaries of the last millennium. Wilson himself documented a number of differences between the tribal boundaries of present-day Yemen and those of the 10th century. Christian Ravan found both continuity and change in the geography of the Nehem tribe in Habdani's writings noting that they did indeed occupy a similar, though smaller, territory as the present-day tribe on the south side of the Wadi Jaff, and also held territory that, quote, extended north of Jaff between the Jabal al-Lad and the Wadi Kaab, see map 5C. Interestingly, as mentioned earlier, this northern region is exactly where Potter and Wellington concluded Nahum must be, based on the textual evidence from the Book of Mormon, without any awareness of the geographical details in Hamdani's writings. Earlier Islamic sources indicate that the Nehem were one of the Arab tribes within the Hamdan confederation that converted to Islam around the year 630 AD, and a letter from Muhammad himself survives mentioning the Nehem among the Hamdan tribes. This does not allow us to confirm their exact borders in these earlier centuries, but Hamdan is the collection of tribes split into two main sub-tribal groups, Hashid and Bakil, occupying the region north of Sana'a, going back into antiquity. The inclusion of the Nihim amongst these tribes when they converted to Islam thus indicates that already by the 7th and likely the 6th centuries AD, they were established in the same general area documented in later sources. NHM in pre-Islamic inscriptions The continuity and longevity of the Yemeni tribes does not begin with the Islamic era, but extends deep into the pre-Islamic past. As R.B. Surgent noted, quote, It is remarkable that tribes today are so generally to be found in the regions they occupied before Islam, though some movement has certainly taken place in the intervening centuries, close quote. In recent years, Roban has emphasized that Yemen's, quote, tribal territorial distribution is regularly remodeled 
with profound modifications in its general inner workings, close quote. Yet despite periodic upheavals, he still notes that there has been considerable stability over time. Quote, One of the unique aspects of Yemen is the stability of toponyms during the last 3,000 years. Four times out of five, the name of a town, of a valley, or of a mountain, recorded in ancient inscriptions, has survived to this day. Some 20 names of tribes also show a very exceptional longevity. This sometimes happens in the same territory. In other cases, one can observe a displacement from the desert to the mountains. Close quote. Brandt observes that, quote, the overwhelming impression is one of minimal change of tribal territories, even if tribal structures have altered or developed from time to time. Close quote. Adding that, quote, in some cases, the continuity of tribal names in their related territories spans almost three millennia. Close quote. Citing Nehem as an example. Numerous pre-Islamic inscriptions referring to individuals as NHMYN or to a group called NHMTN have been found in Yemen. See Table 1. It is possible in light of the meaning of the root NHM in South Arabian languages that the NHMY, NHMT were originally a group of stonemasons who became known as the Nehem tribe. Drawing on these inscriptions, various scholars have located the ancient NHM community within the same general region documented for the Nehem tribe in early Islamic sources. For instance, German-Austrian scholar Hermann von Wissmann studied the pre-Islamic inscriptions to reconstruct Yemen's ancient tribal geography and concluded, based on various inscriptions referring to NHM, NHMYN, and NHMT, that in antiquity, the Nihim occupied the same two regions outlined in Hamdani's writings. See map 5C. More recently, Peter Stein included NHM, located at present-day Nihim, on his map reconstructing the, quote, geographic horizon, close quote, of South Arabian inscriptions carved on palm stock texts, citing NHMYN in a tribal list found at Nashan, YM11748. Commenting on the altars well known to Latter-day Saints, DAI Baran 1988 2, 1994 5 2, and 1996 1, Burkhardt Volk said the inscription's author, named Biathar, comes from the Nihim region west of Marib, close quote, thereby situating ancient Nihim in the same general region as the present day. As previously mentioned, Early Islamic sources identify the Nihim as a Arab tribe, and Arabs were a separate ethnicity on the margins of South Arabian society in antiquity. Detailed analysis of pre-Islamic inscriptions indicates that the, quote, land of the Arabs in ancient South Arabia was the region to the north of the Jaff, extending up to Najran. This is likely why Robert Nevis believed that in Biathar and thus Lehi's day, the Nihim tribe was, quote, undoubtedly north of the Jaff, close quote, thus correlating it with the northern extension from Hamdani's time. Others have similarly suggested that the Nihim originated as Arabs, or Bedouins, in the desert to the north or northeast, and over the course of time migrated south, southwestward, into the present-day position. If the Nihim originated north of the Jaff, it could explain why an individual from Haram bore the title KBR, NHMTN, in the early 7th century BC, 
Haram 16, 17, and 19, which some scholars have interpreted as referring to a tribal group called Nahamatan or Nihamatan, likely a variant of Nihem, CF KBR NHMT in CIH 673. As discussed earlier, Haram had trade connections with Nadran at this time, and other inscriptions from Haram identify leaders of trading posts with the title KBR. As such, it's possible that the KBR NHMTN was the leader of a Haramite trading colony located to the north at an intermediary point between Haram and Najran within the northern Nihem region. The large oasis at Wadi Kab, near the juncture where the trails coming from the Jaff and Hadramaut converged, would be the most plausible location for such an outpost. And according to von Wisman, a secondary caravan route through the mountains directly connected Najran to Haram via the Kab oasis. As noted, this was the northern limit of the Nihim in Hamdani's time, and von Wisman argued that, quote, the region of the oasis Hab and the lowlands in the far eastern semicircle around Hab to the sandy deserts are already called NHM in pre-Islamic times, close quote, citing the occurrence of NHM and NHMYN in ancient graffiti text near Najran. Even if the Nihim originated in the northern mountains or desert, however, it seems likely their presence to the south of Joff began in pre-Islamic times, as indicated by von Wisman, Stein, and Vogt. Some Arabs were known to be, quote, living on or inside the borders, close quote, of mainstream South Arabian society, specifically to the south of Wadi Joff in pre-Islamic times. And evidence from the carved face funerary stele mentioned earlier indicates that this was so from very early on. A burial monument belonging to a NHMYN appears to have come from the southern Nihim region. References to the NHMYN, or the dual NHMYNHN, as vassals and servants to the elites at Sirwa, also suggest that the Nihim already had a presence in their southern territory by the 5th to 4th century BC and perhaps even earlier. Jan Retso carefully studied the pre-Islamic geography of the Arabs in South Arabian inscriptions, and like von Wisman, he identified branches of the Nihim on both the northern and southern sides of the Wadi Jaff, around the same areas occupied by the Nihim in Hamdani's writings. See map 5c. Given historical fluctuations in tribal boundaries, it is unlikely the Nihim's borders in Lehi's day were identical to those of Hamdani's time. Yet, the boundaries outlined by Hamdani are the earliest that can be established with some degree of certainty. And the general sentiment expressed by various scholars who studied the pre-Islamic NHM texts is that there was continuity or overlap with either the northern or southern locations, and possibly both, of Hamdani's Nihim going back to the early 1st millennium BC. Hamdani's borders thus provide a helpful reference point for the geographic range within which the Nihim were most likely located in Lehi's day, even if they did not occupy the entirety of both areas at that time. The earliest Nihim borders and the location of Nahum. Now that we have a better understanding of the Nihim's earliest known borders and a more comprehensive picture of their potential geographic range, we are in a better position to consider how this may or may not fit with the location of Nahum as established from the independent criteria in the Book of Mormon. Remarkably, 
when the borders of Hamdani's Nehem are overlaid on a map with the eastward trade routes and turret tomb necropolises. It reveals significant overlap with the eastward turn zone previously defined. See map 6. Indeed, the earliest known borders of Nehem essentially span the length, north to south, of the eastward turn zone. This means that all the potential eastward routes begin within or near Nehem's earliest known borders, which in turn virtually guarantees that whatever Nehem's specific location and boundaries were in Lehi's day, they would have been in close proximity to a trail eastward across the desert. It is also readily apparent that several of the known burial areas fall within the Nehem's earliest borders, with others in close proximity just outside those borders. In short, there is effectively a direct convergence between where the independent criteria triangulate the location of Nahum and the earliest known borders of the Nahum tribe. According to Deaver, as quoted earlier, when such a convergence occurs, quote, a historical datum or given may be said to have been established beyond reasonable doubt, close quote. That datum, in this case, being that the place which was called Nahum was indeed the Nahum tribal area. Quote, to ignore or deny the implications of such convergent testimony is irresponsible scholarship, since it impeaches the testimony of one witness without reasonable cause by suppressing other vital evidence. Close quote. Beyond this general correlation, reconstructing a more complete picture of the relevant data now makes it possible to consider and evaluate specific scenarios for the burial of Ishmael and the eastward turn. Starting with the southernmost routes and moving northward, I will review four different possible scenarios, each with potential variations, all of which intersect to some degree with previous theories regarding Nahum and the eastward turn. 1. Wadi Nahum In one scenario that has been proposed, Lehi and his family get lost along the twisting, confusing trails south of Najran and end up completely bypassing the fertile region in Wadi Jaff and eventually establish an encampment near the mouth of Wadi Nehem, where Ishmael dies. From there, no more than a day's journey southward through the Wadi Nehem would have led the family to the extensive necropolis reported by S. Kent Brown, mentioned earlier. Returning northeast to the mouth of Wadi Nehem, some researchers have suggested that the family then continued in a northeast direction for about another day, where they would have then merged with the eastward trail going from the Jaff to Shabwa. The mouth of Wadi Nihim, however, is near the main trail leading to Marib, which was only about 35 miles to the east. If they had been truly at risk of starvation when they arrived at Nahum and had completely bypassed the Wadi Jaff, then it seems more likely that they would have joined this main trail eastward so they could take advantage of the opportunity to restock on provisions at Marib before the longer, more arduous journey across the desert. They could then cut across the desert northeast from Marib, rather than Wadi Nihim, merging with the trail extending east from the Jaff around the area of Ruwaik, see map 1. Or they could have followed the eastward arc of the main trail, as proposed by Brown. 2. Village of Mill Another possibility that, to my knowledge, has never been considered is the necropolis just north of the village of Milch, located right at the heart of modern-day Nihem. This possibility would require that the family continue southward from the Wadi Jaff, entering the northeast corner of Habdani's southern Nihem region, 
before pulling off the trail, perhaps due to an illness or tragedy befalling Ishmael. Depending on where exactly they pulled off the main trail, there are multiple wadi trails they could have taken into the heart of the Nehem region to reach the necropolis just north of Milch. One option would have been to take Wadi Majzar southwest through Ferdot Nehem and then cross over a mountain ridge, a journey which took Joseph Halevi and Hayim Habshush about a day to make by camel, from the opposite direction starting near Milch and going to Majzar. If they pulled off the road further to the south, they would simply have to follow Wadi al-Atf into the generally east-west tending Wadi al-Farda, and then continue west about 14 miles along a route roughly similar to modern N5 highway, until reaching a broad, flat plain where the necropolis would be less than a mile to the south. What makes this proposal attractive is that to return to the main road after burying Ishmael, Lehi's family would essentially just turn around and go back along Wadi al-Farda in a nearly eastward direction, merging naturally with the main trail just as it bends eastward and continues on to Marib. Once at Marib, as previously mentioned, they could either continue along the main trail or cut northeast across the desert to merge with the trail that extends east from the Joth. 3. Wadi Joth as previously noted, Warren Aston has long maintained that the Wadi Joff was the base camp wherein the events of 1 Nephi 16, 33-39 unfolded. For example, in 1994, Aston wrote, quote, Likely the Lehite encampment was in the Joff Valley, and Ishmael was carried up into the hills for burial. Close quote. One of the strengths of this model is it potentially works with either the southern or the northern Nehem as they could have buried Ishmael on the slopes of Jebel Yam and Jebel Siliam to the south, bordering the southern Nihim and the Joph, or if we assume a northern Nihim, then Jebel Alad is also a possibility. Some may wonder why they would have taken Ishmael's body up to these remote burial areas, rather than burying him near one of the Joph city-states. But to date, no proper burial grounds have been found in association with those signs. One possible exception to this is the necropolis outside Barrakish, where some carved face funerary stelae were found. But these burials lacked any human remains, and as mentioned earlier, may thus have been cenotaphs rather than proper graves. All the other funerary stelae from the Joff were looted from their original context, and no other graves have been found. Furthermore, if there were proper cemeteries with elaborate burial monuments associated with those cities, as some scholars assume, then they may have been reserved for the city's elites, not foreigners traveling from distant lands. Since both the turret tombs in the outlying areas and some of the carved-faced stelae have been associated with foreigners, caravan traders, and Arabs, the pattern for such groups may have been to bury their dead in the outlying hills or desert, in above-ground cairns along the trail, and then make a cenotaph, which were smaller and thus presumably more affordable than a proper grave, at one of the Joff cities using the roughly hewn carved face funerary stelae. If Lehi and his family followed this same pattern, they could have buried Ishmael in one of the tombs along the border of Joff and Nehem, and then perhaps a member of the Nehem tribe with contacts in one of the cities, such as Haram, assisted them in getting a cenotaph made with a memorial stone similar to the Ishmael stela previously mentioned. After burying Ishmael, Lehi and his family could have then followed the eastward chain of burials, marking the way out to either Shabwa or, if a more 
nearly eastward, bearing as preferred, the wells of Al-Abra and beyond, as Aston has proposed. 4. Cobb Oasis In light of the northern extension of the Nihim's territory in Habdani's time, and the possibility that the Nihim occupied at least part of this region in antiquity, it seems worthwhile revisiting Potter and Wellington's unpublished hypothesis that the events of 1 Nephi 16, 33-39 unfolded within this region between Jebel al-Lad and Wadi Qab. There are no doubt a number of possible scenarios that could be explored, but for the sake of space and simplicity, I wish to merely consider the possibility that the place where the family stopped to, quote, tarry for the space of a time, 1 Nephi 16.33, was the Wadi Qab on the northern end of the earliest known Nihim borders. The main route of the Frankincense Trail likely stopped at the well near the mouth of Wadi Qab, known today as Bir al-Mahashima. Here, the wadi appears every bit as dry and sandy as the rest of the stretch of the trail. If the family were forced to stop at this point due to concerns about Ishmael's health, they very well could have been concerned about, quote, perishing in the wilderness with hunger, 1 Nephi 16.35. Just around the hills, however, are several patches of fertility. Here, Philby found, quote, quite the forest of tall acacias of the umbrella type, close quote, and chased a gazelle into the main wadi channel until coming to, quote, an extensive tract of bushes and trees, rock, abal, acacias, at the edge of the hills, close quote, in which he went, quote, wandering about in search of birds, close quote. Later, he met shepherds who grazed their flocks in this area. As one wanders into this wadi's winding mountain canyon and its tributaries, about 12 miles west of Bir al-Mahashima, one encounters an extensive oasis which sustains several towns and villages in modern times. According to Habshush, in the 19th century, grapes and dates grew here as well, and the people had well-nourished flocks of sheep. While smaller and probably less fertile than what Ajaf was in antiquity, this would nonetheless be a more than suitable place for the family to tarry for the space of a time, first seen by 1633. The barrenness in the immediate area around the well of Mahashima, near the mouth of the wadi and the edge of the desert, certainly could have left the family initially concerned about perishing in the wilderness with hunger. But the discovery of a nearby oasis and wildlife initially hidden behind the hills and sandy plain would have been seen as a great blessing from the Lord, allowing them to obtain, quote, food that we did not perish, First Nephi 16, 35 and 39. Upon Ishmael's death, Nehemite tribesmen could have guided them down the back trail to Haram, which modern accounts suggest only takes a couple of days. Once in the Jaff, they could have taken Ishmael to Jebel al-Lad, or one of the other burial areas along its borders, as previously discussed. In this scenario, the Book of Mormon Ishmael would be a foreigner connected, if only loosely, to a northern Arab tribe, the Nihim, the very profile hypothesized for the individual commemorated by the Ishmael Stella. Perhaps as previously suggested, the family's Nihamite guides used their contacts at Haram to assist the family in procuring a carved-faced Stella as a burial monument. After the burial, the most likely scenario would be that the family stayed in the Wadi Jaff until ready to depart again, at which point they would have taken the eastward trail that leads out across the desert as discussed above. Alternatively, after burying Ishmael, the family may have returned to the Cobb Oasis, or perhaps they never went down to the Joff at all, 
instead choosing to bury Ishmael closer to Wadi Qab. No major necropolises have yet been found there, but a few scattered graves and funerary monuments have been found in the general area, and Philby observed many circular tomb-like cairns to the southeast between Cobb and the Joff, which seemed to be marking an ancient caravan trail. It is also possible that Ishmael's family preferred to bury him quickly and so accepted the necessity of giving him an isolated burial away from any formal burial grounds. If this were so, then the most likely route nearly eastward would be the trail branching off near Bir al-Mahashima and going eastward along the edge of the empty quarter, the trail the Hiltons originally proposed Lehi followed. At the time, they did not know about the Nihim tribe, let alone the evidence indicating they could have been located near this turning point in antiquity. In light of this new evidence, I suggest that it is worth once again considering this route as a possibility. Bountiful nearly eastward from Nahum. What particularly makes Cobb and the nearby eastward trail an attractive option for Lehi's eastward turning point is just how very nearly eastward it is from the primary candidates for Nephi's bountiful. Bir al-Mahashima, where the trail to al-Abr first splits off from the trail to the Joff, is located at 16.46.0 north, 45.50 east, and the Cobb Oasis is located to the west and slightly south at 16.43.0 north, 44.54.0 east. The coast at Kor Karfot, the candidate for Bountiful preferred by most scholars, is located at 16.43.48 north, 53.20.12 east, almost exactly due east of the Cobb Oasis. Korori, the only other candidate for Bountiful in current consideration, is at 1702.22 north, 54.25.50 east, less than a third of a degree off due east from Cobb. Either location reasonably qualifies as nearly eastward. Certainly, the directional relationship between Bountiful and the other possible locations for an eastward turn, such as Haram in the Joff, 1609.35 north, 44.45.51 east, or the heart of the southern Nihim region, 15.45.6 north, 44.34.29 east, is reasonably close enough to true east so as not to be ruled out as nearly eastward. Nonetheless, the tighter east-west relationship between the more northern Cobb oasis suggests that it should not be easily ruled out or dismissed as the setting for the events Nephi says took place at Nahum. Ultimately, each of these scenarios are, in my view, at least, reasonably plausible, and none can be definitively ruled out based on the present available data. Nevertheless, the strongest convergence between the borders of the Nihim, burial of the dead, and eastward travel is in the Wadi Jaff and its immediate borders. Thus, the scenarios wherein the Lehites either established their base camp in the Jaff or came down from Cobb to the Jaff for Ishmael's burial strike me as the most likely at present. Even so, the other scenarios remain worthy of consideration and exploration. To be clear, these different possibilities would not be mistaken as representing different Nahums, as noted above. Nahum is to be correlated with the Nahum tribal region based on the strong convergence established earlier, and within which, based on the earliest known borders, all of the proposals fall. Our analysis has been rather more granular in considering more specifically where within Nahum, Nahum, Lehi's family camped, buried Ishmael, and set out on their journey eastward. 
In these specifics, there remains some uncertainty and room for discussion. In the general location of Nahum, however, there can be no reasonable dispute. Conclusion Having subjected all the facets of the Nahum convergence to independent re-examination, I believe the evidence bears out the identification of Nahum with the Nahum tribal region. Indeed, the convergent relationship between Nahum and Nahum looks even tighter, more complex, and more strongly interlocking than previously suspected. Based on all the evidence reviewed in this paper, the Nahum convergence can be summarized as follows. 1. The name Nahum in the Book of Mormon was an established place name when Lehi and his family arrived in the area, not one simply given to the location by the group, 1 Nephi 16.34. This means it is a name that could potentially be identified in other historical sources. 2. The journey to Nahum consists of traveling in nearly a south-southeast direction from the northern end of the borders near the Red Sea for multiple stints of many days. See 1 Nephi 16, 13 through 17 and 33. The journey from Nahum is nearly eastward until arriving at a coastal location with an abundance of fruit, honey, fresh water, timber, cliffs, mountains, and a harbor. See 1 Nephi 17 through 18. This is generally consistent with the historical known routes of the Frankincense Trail, Map 1, which can be reconstructed, at least in outline form, from sources close to Lehi's time. The only region where known ancient trails turn to a predominantly eastward direction is in the area around the Wadi Jaff, see map 2. And researchers have found inlets consistent with nearly all the features of Bountiful in the Dofar region to the east of the Jaff in southern Oman. 3. The main thing we know about Nahum is that it is the place where they buried Ishmael after he died, 1 Nephi 16.34. Given the importance of a proper burial in ancient Near Eastern culture and religion, including that of the Israelites and Judahites, it is likely that they would have sought out a proper place of burial if one was available or nearby. Extensive burial areas with thousands of so-called turret tombs have been found in the regions surrounding the Wadi Jaff. See map 3. Interestingly, these tombs are correlated with the eastward trail. See map 4. 4. The narrative details in 1 Nephi 16, 33-39 suggest that Nahum must have been a place with resources needed for survival, at a minimum, fresh water, but possibly food as well. But the stretch of their journey immediately preceding Ishmael's death and burial may have entailed greater difficulty and suffering from hunger, thirst, and fatigue. The region north of Wadi Jaff is largely a vast, mountainous desert where others have gotten lost and suffered from hunger and thirst. 5. All of these details combined suggest that Nahum was somewhere within the general vicinity of the Wadi Jaff. Lehi's encampment mentioned in 1 Nephi 1633 could have been in the Wadi Jaff itself or somewhere nearby, perhaps as far as Wadi Cobb, north of the Jaff by a couple-day journey. 6. The Nahum region of Yemen today is just south of the Wadi Jaff, see map 5a. It is the home of the Nahum tribe, see map 5b who have lived in the area near the Jaff since before the rise of Islam. Sources from the early Islamic period indicate that their tribal territory also extended further to the north up to Wadi Qab in that period. See map 5c. Various scholars link the Nihim to this same area in antiquity based on South Arabian inscriptions referring to NHMYN and NHMTN. See table 1. This region directly overlaps 
with the most likely setting for the events in 1 Nephi 16, 33-39, as established independently from the textual criteria in points 1-5, through see map 6. Therefore, it is reasonable to conclude that the Nihim, NHM, tribal region, is the place called Nahum, NHM, in the Book of Mormon. To illustrate what makes these findings so compelling, let us revisit something Ross T. Christensen said in his short note published in the August 1978 Ensign. He observed that, quote, the discovery might confirm the general itinerary, close quote, the Hiltons had outlined, as, quote, Nehem is only a little south of the route drawn by the Hiltons, close quote. In fact, when the route proposed by the Hiltons is accurately documented and mapped, and the earliest borders of the Nehem tribe reconstructed, it actually already passes through the northern corner of the Nehem tribal area, and continued in a generally eastward direction from there to Hadramat and Dofar. This does not necessarily mean that the route proposed by the Hiltons is the most compelling proposal, but it serves to illustrate that even when interpreted without knowledge of the Nehem tribal area, the textual clues and on-the-ground reality of Arabia leads Lehi there anyway. Indeed, the major textual interpretations of 1 Nephi 16.33-17.1 that established the guiding criteria for this study were all well in place before anyone had noticed that a place called NHM existed in Yemen. Already by 1950, Nibley had suggested that the name Nahum was not given by Lehi or his family, and the Hiltons further emphasized that this indicated that it was a settled place with a pre-existing name. By 1957, Nibley had placed Lehi on the major trade route going down the western side of Arabia, and again the Hiltons built on this point and even deduced that Nahum would be located near where the main trails turned east. Nibley had also already reasoned that Nahum was, or at least included, an established desert burial ground to which Ishmael's body might be brought, and both Nibley and the Hiltons had determined that Bountiful was located somewhere in Dofar. Thus, these key interpretations were clearly developed and established from the text without any knowledge of the existence or whereabouts of the Nim tribe. Applying these interpretations using the more accurate information now accessible about ancient Arabia and Yemen, thanks to several post-1970s advances in scholarship and information access, along with additional ancient discoveries, inevitably leads to the, quote, greater Jaff area, close quote, extending roughly from Wadi Kab in the north to a little south of the Wadi Jaff. It is within this region that Nahum must be located, regardless of whether there is or was a place or tribe with an NHM name in that area. It is only within this context that the Nahum tribal territory becomes significant. The earliest documented Nahum borders correspond nearly exactly to the region where Nahum must be located, and scholarly commentary on the inscriptional evidence tends to place them somewhere within that region in antiquity. In short, there proves to be a strong convergence between eastward travel, burial of the dead, and the location of Nehem, a convergence that fits well with Nephi's report of the burial of Ishmael at a place called Nahum, followed by a turn nearly eastward for the duration of their journey to Bountiful. Such a robust convergence deserves to be taken seriously. In the words of William G. Deaver, quote, to ignore or to deny the implications of such convergent testimony is irresponsible scholarship, close quote. And to dispute such testimony, quote, would require a more likely scenario 
replete with new and superior independent witnesses, close quote. Without a more compelling alternative explanation, quote, the case may be considered sufficiently established by all reasonable historical requirements, close quote. Author's note. While I alone remain responsible for the contents and conclusions reached in this paper, along with the errors and mistakes it contains, I could not have done it without the valuable assistance and feedback of several people. For starters, I am deeply indebted to the previous research of Hugh Nibley, Lynn and Hope Hilton, Warren P. Aston, S. Kent Brown, and George Potter, along with his fellow explorers and co-authors. I especially appreciate Aston, Brown, and Potter for their willingness to share their knowledge and experience about Arabia with me through either in-person or email correspondence. Having never visited the region myself, their insight was invaluable. Of necessity, I have had to engage their works critically and reconsider some of their conclusions, but I do so with the intent to build upon, not destroy, the foundation they have invaluably established. Jasmine G. Rapley, Stephen O. Smoot, Kirk Magleby, Tanner Johnson, and Spencer Krauss helped me obtain access to otherwise hard-to-find sources. Smoot, Johnson, Krauss, along with Gregory L. Smith, also provided various levels of assistance with many of the foreign language sources. John Gee, Paul Y. Hoskison, Kerry Hall, and John W. Welch also provided helpful feedback on parts of my research at various stages. Alessandra Avicini graciously provided early feedback on my interpretations of various NHM texts from South Arabia. Jasmine G. Rapley designed the maps that illustrate this article. Such support, of course, should not be interpreted as agreement with my conclusions, for which I accept full responsibility. Nonetheless, I am grateful for all their assistance, and this paper is much improved because of them. Neil Rapley is Director of Research at Scripture Central. He is involved in ongoing research on many facets of the Book of Mormon's historical context, including ancient Jerusalem, especially around the 7th century B.C., ancient Arabia, the ancient Near East more broadly, pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, and the 19th century witnesses to the discovery and translation of the Book of Mormon plates. He's published with BYU Studies, The Interpreter Foundation, Book of Mormon Central, Greg Cofford Books, and Covenant Communications. This has been a recording of The Nahum Convergence Reexamined, The Eastward Trail, Burial of the Dead, and The Ancient Borders of Nahum by Neil Rapley. Published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 60, 2024, read by Victor Worth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Latter-day Saint Scripture can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.